I, I think a couple of things. I think I think one is um, I think you've got to remain curious. I think being curious, I think asking lots of questions. I think people listening to people are on front line, listening to listening to your clients, our members. What are their ideas and and finding ways to do that? I think the other thing is in any organization. Um, it's all about your people, right? It's all about your culture. And if you get, you have to feel motivated. And in my legacy, in, in my, I don't have kids, and I, and I think my legacy in my life is, is if I can have an impact on people in our organization that will take them to a place in their careers that they didn't think they were capable of going to, and I can help them on their journey, they will, will, it, it, you see people open up in different ways that you wouldn't expect. And they do things that they didn't think they were capable of. And that's what drives an organization. It makes it fun. Um, it makes it it makes it interesting. People get passionate about it, and that's how you grow. And I think if you can unlock that from a culture, it's super important. So, for me, I mean, I think that the, the um, my I suppose my advice to anyone running businesses is are those things: be curious, be in the details, speak to lots of people, give talent opportunities, and promote talent because that's mm-hmm. the thing. And and also, great leadership is getting out of people's way. Find good people and just let them do their thing, and let them. And if they fail, that's fine. Work work it out. But. Um, but of course, having the vision and an idea of, of where you want to go. One of my, there's a guy called Tony Schwartz that um, wrote the book Powerful Engagement and things, and he's a, he's a friend of ours. And he talks about the fact that as a as a CEO, you're the chief energy officer. You're the guy, the person that goes in, the guy or the girl that goes in, and you're, you're that galvanizing force and that energy component in a business. And if you can impart that to an organization and you can inspire people to do their best work, that's what drives change and that's what makes a difference. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by WeWork. The way you work has changed. The way you grow your business has changed. WeWork has flexible workspaces built for all the ways you work today, so you can drop in, connect with others, and get to your to-dos. Get out of the house for a few hours and pop by WeWork's co-working space when you need it. Looking to reconnect the team a few times a week? Bring everyone together in an office that fits what they need. Take meetings or offsites around the world from London to LA. Unlock hundreds of locations easily with all kinds of great amenities. They're even dog friendly. Now you can try out your local WeWork for the day for 50% off. To redeem this offer, just go to we.co forward slash behind the brand, download the WeWork app, and use the code behind the brand. Check out by April 15th, 2023 to receive 50% off your booking. This episode is brought to you by my brand new, absolutely free VIP list. Want to get a short note from me each week with what I've learned from interviewing some of the smartest people in the world, the best inspiration, education, access to my private events, special perks, unique finds, free stuff, and a lot more to help you improve your life and business. Get on the list. Just go to behindthebrand.tv forward slash VIP. It's an email newsletter. It's as easy as that. One, two, three, VIP, behindthebrand.tv forward slash VIP and get on the list. This episode is brought to you by Vimeo. I've been a pro user of Vimeo basically since I started my production company in 2010. Vimeo is for creative professionals like me and I use it in several different ways. For example, it's a place for me to upload my videos with a password for my clients to be able to review and download the work I'm doing for them. Uh, There's no compression, crushing of black colors, or oversaturation like what I get when I upload a YouTube video. My clients get the full 4K resolution HD as it was intended. I also use it to host and broadcast live events. I also use Vimeo for my portfolio, case studies, and it never has annoying pre-roll ads. I can create a customized player and keep people on my landing page so they don't get distracted and go down the rabbit hole watching someone else's stuff. 
What you may not know about Vimeo is that you can use it if you're in HR or if you own a company. You can put all of those onboarding videos all in one place, a nice, tidy, professional-looking uh, playlist or playboard where people can consume and understand or download all the new training videos all in one place. You could also do the same thing if you teach a course. Imagine putting all your videos behind a paywall, charging for it, and then you know, sending people the link with a password. Need a videographer, creative director, or editor? Vimeo lets you post jobs and find creative professionals. There's a ton more options, so I would suggest checking them out. Just go to vimeo.com and see what's possible. Hi, my name is James Henderson. I'm the CEO of Exclusive Resorts, and I'm on Behind the Brand with Brian Elliott. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode. James, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. I usually ask my guests, how did you get this job? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think by chance is probably the, the best way of putting it. I think I always think of my life as sort of these chance encounters and being in the right place at the right time. Um, my, my life has always, I've been sort of, I've spent most of my career, I guess, working in, in luxury good spaces. So I've always been businesses that work with high net worth clients. And I was running a, a private aviation company prior to this. And uh, we had just sold that company to a, another group. And um, I was about to sort of embark on another phase of my life with that organization. And I got a call from a recruiter, a headhunter, and uh, and they gave me a call. And I met the um, a guy that was the uh, um, the chairman or the co-chairman of Exclusive Resorts. He was a fascinating character, a guy called Philippe Bourguignon. Um, and I just really liked him. And I think, you know, in my life, I've got to a point where in my career where I just want to work with people that I like and I can I can get a connection with and who I think have good values and and things like that. So I met uh, Philippe Bourguignon, who um, we hit it off really well. And then um, the company I work for, Exclusive Resorts, is owned by Steve Case. And I went and I met Steve down in uh, in D.C. And he's just a super guy. He's humble, um, incredibly successful, um, very thoughtful, um, and really liked it and liked the business and liked the bones of the company. And, and I started back in October 2019. Amazing. We're going to unpack more about Exclusive Resorts, but I want to go back in the chronology and the context behind this question is there's a lot of people who are, you know, doing their thing. They're working their, their nine to five. Uh, maybe they have a new startup they're, and they're trying to figure out, you know, am I on the right path? Am I do, really doing what I love or am I doing what I, I do best? Mm. And I always like to ask people who have, have an interesting career path, did you always know that this is sort of what you'd be doing? What, you know, young James, what were you thinking about when you we're in school and thinking about the career path. Where did you want to go? That's a great question. Um, no, not at all. I mean, I think um, so. I'm British by nationality. Grew up in the UK um, in a in a small town outside of Manchester, and and didn't really have a lot of aspirations as a kid. I was uh, uh, probably one of the first in my family to go to go to college. Um, went to university, and and everything was sort of one step at a time. And so I went to university in uh, uh, in Birmingham in the UK. And at that time, I think I always thought that if I, I traveled, um, I guess if I'm really honest about it, I always wanted to sort of make myself a more interesting person. Mm -hmm. And I thought if I, if I traveled a bit and I did something that was a bit out of the normal for the sort of environment that I was in, that I would come back and people would find me more interesting. And that was kind of the reality of it. Um, and I sort of had this fascination to go to, to, uh, to go overseas. And I got, a, I got an internship actually in London with a company called BP, which is sort of a, a year out when I was in college. And I was working the trading desks for VP. And I was spending my mornings working with a team out in, in Hong Kong and Singapore and things. And in the afternoons, I'd work with the people in, in, the, uh, in the US. And I was talking to the guys in Hong Kong saying, can I get a, a trip out to Hong Kong for the summer? Um, so I thought that would be interesting. And, uh, 
Um, and in, in the end, I couldn't do that. But someone said, do you want to go to L.A.? So I went to L.A. for the summer. And that was my first sort of trip outside of, of the U.K. And that just gave me the bug. And I went back, finished my final year at college, and then decided I still wanted to go to Asia. So I packed my bags and I kind of went. Yeah. yeah I put a timestamp on that. But, but what uh, year was that? 1990. Yeah. Okay. So I left in 1990 in the UK. So I went to Australia for um, about 18 months. I got a job with a management consultancy company. That's where I sort of cut my teeth on you know, data analytics and strategy and writing business plans, which is kind of the core of, of what I do. I write a lot of business plans and do growth stuff. Yeah. And then um, went to Hong Kong with a suitcase, didn't know anyone. Yeah. Got off the plane, started looking around, got a job. Yeah. So this... Uh, 1990s. I mean, this is uh, the U.S. is coming out of a housing recession, out of a you know kind of a bust market, getting back on its feet. Uh, what, what was the environment like at that time? So, I mean, it's hard to tell honestly. I mean, I think I, I was I was out of the UK pretty quickly, and I was in Australia for 18 months. I was having a blast. Um, went to Hong Kong at the time. Hong Kong was booming. Mm -hmm. um, it was you know it was a point where. Um, it was also a little bit of a frontier town as well because Asia hadn't really developed as it was. I had, a, as a British person, I had an access kind of passport so I could work there. Um, and it was just fun. It was a very dynamic environment. Um, I was in, I send, ended up in Hong Kong for five years. Oh, wow. I did, uh, I did the first two years, I did Hong Kong, China and traveled in Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou, places like that in the early 90s, which was, I mean, that was really just the, the wild frontier at that point. It oh, was, yeah. Uh, it was crazy. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, if I'm remembering too, like it's also a time uh, about a, a decade before that, that was the time where the Japanese market was buying up a huge amount of United States real estate, yep. you know, a lot of New York That's City right. and That's a lot right. of LA and, mm. and then there was a bit of a bubble and then, you know, and then the next frontier was Hong Kong, China Yep, that, and that just started to explode. Yeah. Yeah. I was out there from, so I spent two years in Hong Kong, China, and then I did, uh, I, they gave me a job. And I was in my early 20s. It was amazing. I was traveling all over Asia. <clears throat> I was regional uh, business development director. So I was, I was literally all over Southeast Asia. I was in Japan, Korea, Taiwan, um, and growing and developing new markets for a luxury goods group out there. So it was, it was just a super fun time to be there. Yeah. And I'll bet it did make you a more interesting person. Uh, you become, I, I, I lived and worked in Asia a little bit as well, and it made me uh, more well-rounded human, just understanding Eastern philosophy versus yep. Western. Uh, it's a totally different way of doing things. Uh, even the grammar is completely opposite of our yep. grammar. Yep. Everything yep. is almost like metaphorically backwards different. Uh, what did you learn during those times? Well, I'm not really sure whether I ever became that more interesting person, but it was always an aspiration. I think I'm still aspiring to it. But, um, you know, I think I think for me, it was, a, it was such a different environment. It was a very different culture. Yeah. You know, everything from, um, you know, the language, obviously, and, and seeing the difference in cultures across Asia Pacific was pretty right. extraordinary. I mean, China is obviously very specific, but, um, you know, when you go into other places like Indonesia and the Philippines and, and places like that, and you see the way people work and, and different styles, I think it gives you a, it broadens your mind. I think you see yeah. different cultures, different perspectives. I think you also get out of your comfort zone of your own world that I saw in the UK yes. from this middle class background that I lived in and living out there. You see things very differently, and I think I think values change. Um, I think it opens your mind. I think it probably makes you more ambitious, yeah, because of possibility that you can see. I certainly think I became more entrepreneurial because of it. Yeah, that was my experience as well. I mean, I was very ethnocentric at the time, only mm -hmm. seeing it a one certain way, the mm -hmm. Western way, and then seeing how the rest of the world sort of do does things um, from medicine, yeah. food to cultural values yeah. to religion. Right. It was very, it was fascinating. Yeah. 
humbling too, realizing, oh, I've, I've only just, <laughs> you know, I've got a lot, lot to learn. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, you know, just again, the sort of the, the diversity of cultures was extraordinary. And, mm -hmm. and I was, I mean, I was lucky. I had a lot of responsibility at a, at a fairly early age, which was, uh, which was fantastic for me. Yeah. And so, uh, so where did you go from there? So I did. Um, so in 97, um, I had been in Hong Kong for five years and been traveling over Asia. Uh, I did a brief stint in Singapore and I was going to go and do my MBA in Lausanne in Switzerland. And that was kind of my, my goal. Um, and so I had a place at IMD in Lausanne, which is, which is one of the sort of the top European business schools. I was super excited about it. And a friend of mine called me up and this is, this is sort of where I think you have to be open to opportunity. And he said, I've just met this guy who bought a Formula One team. Mm. And I, which watched Formula One as a kid. And I thought, well, that's sort of one of those crazy things that you could never be part of. And so I, um, I ended up going and meeting this guy in Switzerland. And this guy comes into, into a conference room. And he gives me a story in 97 that he just bought this uh, Formula One team. He invested into the Sauber Formula One team, Swiss team. He'd signed up Patronus as a partner. It was the first time in Formula One. He had got Didi Matashitz, the owner of Red Bull, to invest into the into mm -hmm. the team. A big deal. Uh, which is a big deal, yeah. And, he, and, the, and the big deal was he'd done a deal with Ferrari to supply engines to the Formula One team. And he was a deal guy. He was a Liechtenstein trust guy, phenomenal character. But he needed someone to write a business plan. And, he's, and I used to write business plans all the time. And he said, can you write a business plan? If you write this business plan for me, um, I'll give you some money and it will, it will, you know, consultancy fee and it will pay your college tuition fees. Then go and do your MBA and maybe there's something to come back for after that. Yeah. What an opportunity. It was amazing. And so I went to, um, I met him and honestly, when I first met him, I thought this guy was, was I didn't quite realize whether it was real or whether it wasn't. Yeah. And he invited me back a, a week later um, to meet in the Formula One factory. And I'm sitting in the I factory. I want to pause you for just a second because um, I, I'm, I'm super curious about signals. And you, you followed that signal. So I, mm. I want to really unpack that a little bit more because I've talked about it more than once on this show yeah. and asked people, you know, I'm guilty of sometimes missing the signal mm. where it was, you know, it, it came and I ignored it, and yeah. maybe it was an opportunity cost, right? Mm -hmm. But here's here's one that you followed. So how did you know whether to pursue that or not? Here you are, a, a Brit, and you've, you're traveling all over the place, and now this Swiss guy yeah. <laughs> says, yeah. come over yeah. and meet me here. Yeah. 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 How did you know that it was legit or worth your time and effort? Well, it was through, it was through a good friend of mine. So it was a, a very good friend of mine that I'd worked with um, in, uh, in Asia. Actually, he was in the UK, but we did a joint venture together. Yeah. And he was one of these people that was extraordinarily well connected. And okay. um, for some reason, I've always gravitated to people that, and I, and I like connections, I like networking, I love meeting people, which is why I like what I do now. Right. Um, and and I was just curious, I think, um, and fascinated. And I think, um, and so when I when I met, first I, I, I had trust that I was going to be connected with someone that was worth my while to come do that. Right. Um, and um, and the guy was just he gave me an interesting story, and it was pretty fascinating. And yeah. It seemed a bit too good to be true, to be honest. I didn't quite believe that it was it was it was real. And then went back to the UK, spent a week with my folks, and, and on the way back out to Hong Kong, so I started to go back for a few weeks. Um, I went back to Switzerland, and I went to the Formula One factory. And sure enough, I'm sitting in the canteen, and the Formula One drivers are sitting next to me on a table next to me, and and I'm like, this is this real. Is real. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was this. It was a sort of a pinch me moment, and um, and I so I, I agreed to do it. Yeah. And a week later, or two weeks later, I'm in. Switzerland in the snow and and writing this business plan. Amazing. I'm curious what your father and 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 mom did 
Do they both work? What, what, what were their careers like? Yeah, my mum was a stay-at-home mum, and uh, my father he um, he was in the automotive business as a, okay. uh, when I was young, and, and again nothing. He was a, a director of a company, um, but it wasn't a huge organization, and um, and they had. I mean, we came from pretty humble background, really. So I'm curious: was he giving you? Uh, was he coaching you at all? Giving you direction, or were you fairly independent? Because I think sometimes you know our parents have the best intentions yeah. to say, oh, you know, that's sort of. Uh, very risky. Don't do it, or you get, get more of a safe, security kind of job. Uh, did he give you any advice or guidance, or are you following your gut? No, no. He did. My father was always a, a sort of a, a good guiding light in my life. He's a very, um, very level-headed person. Um, people would go to him for advice. Family members would ask him for advice, and he was always good at sort of the rationale. He'd think things through very thoughtfully, and but he was always quite conservative too. Um, and so. When I actually left Formula One, he didn't want me to leave it because he thought I was make, taking a risk leaving it. That was mm. years later, but um, but no, he was really good. I mean, he always gave me really good advice and it was a good sounding board. And and he was my best friend as a kid. I mean, I'm an only child, and um, so it was quite a. It was also kind of a wrench because I went out to Asia, and you know, I, I was in my twenties and left my parents for like five years in Europe yeah. and was sort of out there on my own. Yeah, it sounded like you went home for that in a week or two, and. Maybe consulted with him, and he he was going to encourage you to maybe follow that. Yeah, path. absolutely. Did. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Okay, so your reality it came to fruition. It became a reality. You're there, the Formula One team. Where did it go from there? So I I went and did the business plan, and um and it was supposed to be like an eight week business plan, and I was there for five days in the factory, and I called up the business school and I said, "Can I defer for a year?" And they said, "Maybe." Um, and um, and I said, well, I'm going to do this anyway, and I'll come back to you in a year. And walk us through, kind of give us, unpack the, the business plan. Like, what what was the plan? How did you go about doing it? I don't know if if a lot of people these days are doing a proper business plan. You know, I've done several yeah. in my career. Yeah. But it seems like more and more we're working ad hoc or yeah. we're working sort of, you know, bootstrap. Talk us through how you how you did that. So I think I mean my philosophy of business plans is I think you always have to have a vision and a goal in mind, right? I mean you have to have an idea. I, I mean I write a lot of stuff, even when I in, in my role today, I spend my weekends and I'll and I'll belt things out in PowerPoints because it helps me formulate my thinking. Yeah. And you know, you you create this vision of where you want to go and you articulate it and you have an idea of what that looks like and the you goal, visualize the it. But you never always get there, right? I mean you 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 do something where you start off on this course <clears throat> or on this journey and you go certainly down the road to it. At some point, something changes, you pivot, something changes, right. you adjust, and you might end up somewhere completely different, but yeah. you've got to start off on a path that gives you sort of that idea. And and I think, um, and for me, writing a business plan like that, it was really looking at all the different pieces, how they all came together, mm-hmm. what the end goal was. We had, you know, Petronas at the time was, was, was investing about $80 million a year with us. And so they were looking, they wanted to build a whole automotive industry and use technology, and they wanted branding and... And Malaysia at the time, which is so Petronas was the state-owned oil company, still is in Malaysia. And their whole intention of going to Formula One was to put Malaysia on the map. And at this time, Malaysia at that time was it was the second highest growth economy in the world after China. Mm-hmm. So it was so uh, Mohammed Mahathir, who was the, the the PM at the time, was had these great ambitions for the country, phenomenal mm-hmm. ideas. And F one's got the exposure to the world, and exactly right, which on the world stage, and that's exactly what he wanted. And yeah. he built a Formula One track, and he went and tapped on the door of Petronas, who was the biggest company, had the biggest bank account, and said, "You've got to put your name on a Formula One car," which is what they did. And that was kind of interesting, also, because it was it was a big shift for them because they were they'd never done anything like this before. Firstly, yeah, and secondly. They, it was a big culture change for them. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were, they were a very sort of 
a developing country at the time, which was which was fascinating. Yeah, and it's interesting that you say you know uh, Red Bull was a part of that because yeah. uh, they're very much an early leader in influencer very much so. marketing. Absolutely right. And so what we're talking about basically is what we know today as influencer marketing. Exactly right. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, or you know advertising on a broader yeah. scale. But yeah, brilliant. Okay, and uh, and so were you the only one sort of managing that plan? So were you the only business mind in there? So I was. Yeah, sort of. I mean, the the, the team. A lot of Formula One teams. This is. Kind of, I think this is kind of interesting. A lot of sports. Um, I think they've, they've changed a lot now, though. But in the early days, you know, people that were involved in those industries were people who were passionate about them, right? And you go in and you start off, and you know, yeah, they're drivers or mechanics or you and know, they go out at Ferrari or. And if I looked at the team that, that we had when I was at uh, within Sauber, the organization, um, you know, most of the people had come up through motorsports, and mm-hmm. and I came in and. and Put a sort of a structure and a, and a plan together mm-hmm. that we put into place. So we wrote the plan. We did that over. I did it over like eight or ten weeks. Did you get any pushback from the uh, endemic crowd? Well, not really. Because this outsider, well, know about motorsports. Yeah. Well, so interestingly, because so the guy that I was working for was on the main shareholders in the business, and so I went in with his backing because he had a lot of obviously clout because he had control of the company pretty right. much. Um, and so the cool thing was I wasn't actually initially reporting up into the Sauber organization. I was brought in by somebody who was a shareholder. So I got access to pretty much anything in the organization. So I had that sort of power of attorneys, maybe the wrong word of putting Protection. it. Protection. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, the sponsorship and the, and the ability to go in and, and ask questions and dig mm-hmm. a little bit. Um, but it wasn't like that. I mean, I, I think that the, you know, you, you, in any business like that you go into, you've got to build collaboration. You've got to build connections. You've got to win support of people. You've got to. Yeah. And and I think and I and I, I think this is a huge part of any organi- when you run any organization. I spend an awful lot of my time selling ideas into people, winning support. You've got to get collaborators. One of the best advice I had ever had in my career was when I was in Hong Kong, and I was working for this consumer goods company in Hong Kong. My my first job out there, and I I had a letter of complaint written about me. I was twenty five, and mm. and this guy wrote a letter of complaint. He said James is too pushy, he's a bit aggressive, and he steps <laughs> on toes and. And my boss at the time was a German guy who's in his 60s. And he sat down with me one day and he said, look, James, he said, you can come in at 8 o'clock in the morning or 7 o'clock in the morning. You can work late at night. But he said, if you don't have the people behind you, you'll never be successful. Mm-hmm. You have to win the support of the people. And, I, and that was the best advice I think I've ever had in my career. And I went back and I really thought about that. And, of course, I, the whole weekend I was, I was very upset that I had to sort of figure this out. I went back in the next week and I figured out a way to, to get quick wins and give people things. And I got support. What did you do? Did you bring in bagels? Or like- <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, I dug into the organization. I found roadblocks. I'd, I'd sit with people. I'd figure out what is making your job more difficult. Right. And if I can find something that I can make your job a little bit easier, just a little bit easier, and it's a win that I get, then I build trust with you. Yes. And you believe that I'm your advocate and your ally. And then what happens is you come and you tell me things about the organization and you give me ideas. And again, I take this through every organization I've been in. I've been in maybe five or six different industries. But the best ideas that you'll ever get in organizations, they come from the people at the coalface. They come from the people on the front line of the organization that are dealing with the clients or they're, they're in the, the sort of the trenches, right? Yeah, they have their finger on the pulse. Yeah, and they, and they, don't, and they don't know how. So, so if you spend time as a, as a leader of a company, and I spend a lot of time calling up and down a company, listening to people, and I get ideas for things. And, and my, my job in this is, as a leader of any organization, is to put a series of processes and structures into place to move the organization forward, create the vision for it. But a lot of the really good ideas come from these people on the front line. And if you can give them the 
Um, if you can take those and you can implement them and give them the credit for it, which of course they appreciate and is, is important because um, that builds culture and fabric of culture. But that's the thing that changes companies. I mean, you've got to be, I think you, as, a, as a leader of any organization, you've got to be super accessible and you've got to listen to people. Mm-hmm. The most, and this is what I, every business plan I've ever written, honestly, I just sit, I sit and listen to people, ask questions, be yeah. curious. I'm really glad that you're saying it. I like to just underscore what you're saying because it's it's so um, obvious, and yet it's uh, it's not intuitive. It's not rocket science. And uh, I think you know there's a famous book that a lot of Americans read. You know who are coming up. Uh, it's this Dale Carnegie book, How to Win Friends and Influence. Oh, it's one of the greatest books. And it's such a great book. And you know, the under uh, one of the core messages is if you want to get what you want. Help other people get what they want first, yeah, and then you get what you want, mm. which is exactly the, the exactly right the principle that you were implementing. That's such a great book. It, it, I, I, one of his one of my favorite lines from that book was when he was at dinner with Lady Astor or something, and he sat and he was asking her questions all night, and he, he basically told her nothing about himself. Dale Carnegie, and she turned around at the end of the night and he said, "My, you're such a great conversationalist, right? <laughs> you're and so she, interesting." And she's so interesting, right? And he said nothing, but he got all of this sort of this this information. But yeah, um, it's that uh, when you become interested. You become interesting. That's a great way of saying it. Yeah, absolutely right. Yeah. That's actually great. I like that a lot. I'm going to use that. I, it's not original. I've heard it many times. <laughs> but it's true. And it's yeah, yeah. That's what Carnegie was trying to say is, yeah. uh, you know, you're really trying to, you know, and, and maybe this is like a Stephen Covey principle, like seek to understand before you're understood kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, when you really absolutely. find out what the the real problems are, what the obstacles are, when you listen and find mm-hmm. out before mm-hmm. trying to mm-hmm. prescribe you know, or, you know, uh, give a diagnosis. One of the examples I remember from Covey's book is, you know, he's wearing a pair of glasses and their prescription. And he's like, you know, I, I see just fine. And I see that you're having a problem seeing, you know, here, take my glasses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's not the way it works, right? Yeah. We each have our own custom prescription exactly. and we need to customize it. So I, I love the fact that you're talking about that because it's applicable to whoever you are, wherever you are. Very good device. Okay. So, uh, then, after a time, you left. Yep. So I stayed for five years in Formula One. In the end, um, and it, I loved it. It was great fun. It was, but I also got to a point where I realized that it, it was an interesting industry at the time. It wasn't as developed as it is now. I mean, the US has, has changed things, but um, to really get on, Formula One was controlled by a guy called Bernie Eccleston at the time, and it was a very tight sort of community. And you either had to be really running a team. And I decided at the time, and this was probably an element where I was thinking about being a bit more risk averse, perhaps. We sold the team actually to BMW and to Credit Suisse. And for me, it was a good segue. I'd been there for five years. I'd, I'd evolved with it. Um, hadn't done my MBA and decided I wanted to go back and do it. Did you have some equity in that company or you were just no, an employee? No, I was an employee at okay. the time. Oh, too bad. Uh, yeah, it's too bad, unfortunately. Yeah, exactly right. Um, and even now, it would have been worth even more money. But um, Did you have a chance to negotiate uh, equity at all, or it wasn't even no, on the table? No, not on the table at that time yeah. in that organization. Yeah, you were a smaller cog in the wheel, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't as so much that. It just wasn't that sort of a structure. I mean, we had Red Bull as a partner um, in the business, and Peter Sauer was the other majority owner, and another guy mm-hmm. um, that had brought me into the business was uh, was a, an owner of the business. So there wasn't really... And in those days, you know, back in sort of the, the pre, it was sort of pre.com really, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, there wasn't quite the sort of the drive for equity. And I think truthfully at the time, I wasn't as attuned to that, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, I hadn't sort of thought about that side of wealth creation and, and growth and things like that. I mention it because nowadays it's a good option Yeah, when there's maybe not budget and you're, you know, you're worth a lot and the company yeah. may not have yeah. the means, maybe they're a startup or 
whatever the situation is, and it's an option to negotiate, right? If you're yeah. still trying to earn what you're worth, you know? Yep, yep, yep. So you, you left after five years, the company was, the team was sold. Yes. And? And then I went to uh, Switzerland, did my MBA at uh, IMD, which was great. Um, IMD is a fantastic school. It's, um, you know, the, the MBA program there, we had 90 people in the course. It's a one-year program, super intensive. Mm -hmm. And we had, uh, I think we had 40 nationalities out of 90 people. Mm -hmm. Um, which was just great. I mean, we had a, it was a super connection for me. And for me, the reason I did it was I, I felt there were a number of areas that I wanted to sort of round out my skill set, mm -hmm. um, financial analysis, modeling, um, organizational stuff, strategic things like that, that I thought would be, would be super helpful. The network of course is, is phenomenal. So I did that, finished that, um, worked briefly in Zurich for a while in consulting, did a few, um, uh, finance raises for luxury goods companies out there that I was working on. And then I got a chance to come to LA, actually. Um, again, very by chance or coincidence, I met someone that um, had invested into a consumer goods company based out here. And this was the day sort of pre-functional beverage type stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought, this is interesting. Um, and I was actually doing a few deals at the time, entrepreneurially, where I was getting licenses from companies in the US and I was working, doing back-to-back -back deals with them in, in the UK. Okay. Um, and so I ended up out here and, and running a consumer goods company, doing a turnaround. Mm -hmm. and, and what year is this? This was 2002, three, I think. Yeah, three. Okay. And so I had- Just after the dot-com bust. Just after the dot-com bust. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Um, and I'd never done a turnaround before. And I'd never, and it was, this was, my background was the luxury goods industries, and this was sort of out of my field. But it was great. I mean, I came in and ran this business, smallish organization, rolled my sleeves up, got into it, was, you know, making all these changes in the business, turning it around. Um, and running everything from one day in the warehouse, the next day the finances and strategy. It was great. Um, and then we uh, we ended up selling that business. Um, and that was in 2006, I think. I can't okay. remember now. Um, so that was interesting um, exit. So that was that was good for me. And then I still hadn't sort of, wasn't sure what I wanted to do after that. And this was the opportunistic element. And I got a phone call. Again, chance meeting. Someone met me and referred me to a guy um, in another recruiting firm, a, a headhunter. Um, and they were looking for someone to do a fractional ownership in yachts. Mm. So this was at about the time when NetJets was around. And the funny thing was, I actually knew exclusive resorts at that time because I'd studied the model. So I was looking at this project. So I went in and did this fractional ownership business. It was a group of guys in, in Florida, a ton of money. And they had owned yachts and they had chartered yachts and they thought we should create a NetJets for yachts. And they had a name for the business and they had a checkbook. Um, so I went into that business again, started out writing a business plan for them, put a series of partnerships together. Um, and we would do partnerships with like four or five large organizations that were well-funded. And then- um, It's sort of a, an Airbnb model for yachts or, a, or you said uh, the NetJet. Yeah, it's like NetJet. So basically the idea is that instead of owning a yacht outright that you're gonna use for five or six weeks a year, you buy a share of it and you buy like an eighth fraction of it. It's like a Picasso model. This was way before the Picasso concept. Right. Um, so you buy an eighth share of it, you get access to it for a certain number of weeks a year, someone else manages it for you. Um, and there's a, you put a hospitality level on the top. We were talking to Horst Schultz from West Paces, the guy that built Ritz-Carlton. Mm -hmm. uh, we were talking to NetJets about partnering. We were talking to um, Benetti Yachts about partnering, a, a range of things like that. So we had a great roster of brands yeah, behind it. Absolutely. And then Lehman collapsed. <laughs> and um, everything fell out of the market. And we just, we the, the guys that had money initially all of a sudden didn't have the money to invest anymore because they had automotive businesses and things that were all um, or distribution businesses, retailers. Yeah, we were talking off camera. That's September 2008. I know that very that, well. You're right. 
Yeah. Because uh, that's that's where I was yeah. in this little startup, yeah. uh, you know, holding the bag. So yeah. tough times. It was really tough. Um, and so we then went out and said, well, what do we do? Do we go out and, and see if we can find some more financing? So I started going and knocking on doors and I went to this company called Ferretti Group, which is a big Italian yacht manufacturer. And I went and I was introduced to a guy that was was one of the shareholders and I met the attorney. Um, or the attorney actually introduced me to Freddy Group. And he said, you should go meet these guys. So I went and met them in the Four Seasons in Miami and I pitched these guys across the table about investing in this business. And I gave them one of my, my best pitches and I got a phone call a week later and they said, they're not going to invest, the, the attorney said. But he said, I said, okay, that's fine, but I appreciate your, your time. And he said, well, he said, but they want to hire you. And I said, well, what for? They want a GM of the US. And I said, well, I've got to finish this project and I, I'm committed to this. And um, and so I, anyway, I, I ran that to a point where we couldn't run anymore. And after about yeah. four or five months, I called them back and I said, are you still looking for someone? They said, yes. And so I had probably one of the strangest interviews in my life um, at the Cannes Boat Show on the back of a 43 meter yacht <laughs> with seven Italians. I spoke no Italian at the time. And um, they would ask me these questions and I would answer in English and they would go off into Italian. I had no idea where this was going. But anyway, I got the job. Um, it ended up running um, commercial operations for this company called Freddy Group for the Americas um, and did that in the, U in the US. And then they sent me to Italy for a while. I was living in Miami and I did commercial operations, sales and marketing for the group globally, mm. uh, which was super fun. And a big manufacturer. We sold everything from the smallest boat we built was a 33-foot Reaver, which was a million dollars. The biggest boat we built was 150 million probably. Wow. Um, which was 80 meter um, yacht. This um, is like a Jeff Bezos style yeah, you know, exactly. luxury yacht. Yeah, it was, it was great business. It was super fun. And and the great thing about that was that the product was just, being in the yards was fantastic and the product was so amazing. And um, it was uh, it was a great business to, uh, to be in. Did that and then came back to the US and ran the Americas um, through until I think 2016. And then... I'm sensing a pattern, which is yep. you seem to gravitate to little subcultures, or in other words, little communities. If yep. I'm picking up on the pattern here, yep. um, it seems like several hundred or thousand little steps. Yep. You know, even from your earliest start in Hong Kong and back uh, in different places, brought you to where you are today, into this business model of communities. Yep. Um, is that the case? Am I picking up the right pattern? Yeah, I think so. I think there's a sort of an element of, um, you know, I think I've always been fairly opportunistic in terms of, of what I've done. I've, I've, I mean, I say to people all the time that, the, that I think the two most important things that in, as you think about your career, and I say this to people in the company all the time, is that your reputation, and your relationships, the two most important things you'll ever have, right? Right. Everything, education you can get, other things you can do, um, but keeping connections with people, building bridges, maintaining those bridges, and being someone that you is relied upon, you've proven something, you've built something, you're trusted. Um, that's the thing that opens doors. And and that's what's always been in my life. I've, I've always had people that have um, been, I had a lot of mentors. I think my father was a, was a mentor for me and, and he, he passed away. Actually, he passed away in two, my, both my parents in 2000, 2001, within about nine months of each other. Oh, wow. And that, that might have also been sort of one of the things that, that triggered me, I think, to, to become more opportunistic. But, um, but I've always sought out mentors in organizations. I've always been very lucky to have people that have supported me and backed me. And I think the other thing that's probably a thread of my career is I've always done transformations, mm -hmm. which is, and that, I didn't actually realize that probably until a few years ago. But every business I go into, I, it, it's here and I take it to here. Mm -hmm. Or I'm part of the team that takes it to here. 
And usually it's a sort of a five to six to seven year process. Mm -hmm. You're the turnaround guy. And I'm I'm not sure turnaround is is so, sort of. I mean, I'm, I think a bit more transformation because I think some of the businesses were in a decent shape when I got there. I just took them to another level. Yeah. Um, some of them were turnarounds. Yeah. Um, like Exclusive Resorts wasn't a turnaround, but we just evolved it pretty significantly over yeah, the five from, or six from years. from good to better or better to best? <clears throat> better to best, I think, yeah. That's, yeah. that's a nice way of putting it. Um, so that, I think, is, is sort of the thread. And then with, with Ferretti Group, we, um, we, we took it out of the crisis, really, in, in sort of, I got there in 2009, um, was that 2016, and um, we ended up selling it to a big Chinese group, which was, a, which was fascinating because... And I've lived in a lot of different places. And at the time, I think I was the most international guy in the world. I was an English guy living in Miami, working for an Italian company that we sold to Chinese, selling yachts to Colombians, Mexicans, Venezuelans, Americans, and, yeah. and Canadians. But it was fun. But you, you'd done all the work prior, right? Uh, and that's another maybe lesson that we can extract, which is this idea that you, you can't fake being good at push-ups. Right? You have to do the work to get good at push-ups. You do. And you had done all of that groundwork, that legwork, that networking, that friendshiping, that relationship building from the get, right? And that brought you or enabled you to be Mr. International yeah. at the time, yeah. uh, a Brit living in Miami doing business with the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and you know, and that doesn't happen overnight. That's mm. that's forethought. That's pre mm. preparation. That's mm. when they say you know, luck is when opportunity meets preparation. Yeah, that's yeah. what we're talking yeah. about here. That's right. Yeah, you can't just waltz waltz into that That's without right. uh, doing the work. Good on you. And so that brought you then uh, to a point where you were ready for ex exclusive resorts. Not quite. I had a step between that. So 2016, I went to um, private aviation. Okay. And so I got a call from, I was actually, I got a call from a, 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 another company, another headhunter, all headhunter, it seems to be my, my, my transitions. Mm -hmm. But um and they were looking for someone to run a, a company that was owned by TPG, Texas Pacific. It's a big private equity firm. And um, and I went. It was a it was a private security company called Gavin DeBecker and Associates, which is actually down here in in LA. And I interviewed for that job. And at the end of the interview, the last guy to interview me um, was a very cool guy, uh, Brad Stewart, a really good friend of mine. And he said, um, he said, why do you want to do this job? And I said, well, I think it's really interesting. It's like they're dealing with very high net worth clients and security. And he said, I think you're going to hate it. Hmm. And I've been like all the way through the interview at this point. I'm thinking, I've got this job. And, and anyway, he said, you should work in private aviation. And he was running this company called Exojet at the time. And he said, you should come work for Exojet. And so I ended up going and, uh, and working with Exojet. Um, okay, so which, he's trying to steal you away. Yeah, basically. Yeah. I mean, and and it, was, it was awesome. It was good. And I was living in the East Coast. And I moved to San Francisco um, to work with Brad and the team. And it was Exojet was probably the best run company I'd ever worked for in my life. I mean, super smart guys, service industry. I think... And, and I'd never been in the service industry before. I'd always sold products, like expensive products. Um, yeah, <laughs> yachts and, 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 you know, those sort of industries is, is an interesting spot. Even Formula One was kind of a unique space. But um, I think the private aviation industry is probably one of the most extreme service environments because you have these people that pay $30,000, $40,000 to travel from San Francisco or L.A. to New York. And you can go and buy a ticket for $2,000 and you get to the same place. But your expectations yeah. are so much higher. Quite a bit, yeah. And then if things go wrong, like if you have five mechanicals in a row or the plane doesn't come or something, your patience level drops dramatically. Sure. High expectations. High expectations. Yeah. And so the, 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 I learned enormous amount working with those people. And my colleagues that I worked with were just, they were the best in the business. And um, it was fun. It was a great environment. And that was really well run. We then uh, ended up selling that business to VistaJet, 
another big group in Europe, similar pattern here. You can see the patterns of my career. Mm -hmm. And I was going to go to VistaJet, and that took me to 2019. Um, and I got a call from uh, this recruiter about exclusive resorts. Wasn't looking. And then that's when I met Philippe and I met Steve and I liked them and I thought these guys are good people and that was my connection. It was mm -hmm. interesting time because it was, you know, as we were talking about earlier off, off the, um, the podcast. Uh, let me ask you about, you know, um, you're sort of playing this low key, um, uh, playing a little hard to get, I guess, you know, you're, you weren't looking perhaps, but like, so give some advice to people who, I, I, let me let me set it up by saying there's some people out there uh, who make it very obvious that they are looking for their next career move. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. Uh, there's a platform called LinkedIn, and then you can yeah, be very yeah. overt about it, and it's sort of annoying and a bit of a turnoff, right? It's off-putting when you see someone so obnoxiously, uh, so promoting or doing. Mm. So, how did, <laughs> what advice can you impart to people who are actively looking but they don't want to act like they're looking? Do you know what I'm saying? Look, I mean, the, the best, in my view, it's back to this reputation relationships, right? Yeah. I mean, you want people that are your advocates. Right. You want people that you've done it. Like if, ever, if anyone ever calls me um, and is, is seeking a reference for someone, or if I'm seeking a reference, the number one question you ask is, would you hire this person again? Right. Right. That's the question. So are you and, saying you should definitely speak to so-and-so and then ask well, them about me? Or No, I think, I think it's more about just do a really good job, right? Right. Because that will open doors. Like I work for uh, this company that's owned by this this guy called Steve Case. I think he's phenomenal, um, and I and I love working with with him. I love working with the organization. We've got an incredible team. My career, if I do a great job with Steve Case, other that will open the door to other opportunities for me. Right? Yeah, that's how I see it. And and I think if you find people in organizations that are find mentors, look for people that will back you. Right? Mm -hmm. I've been super lucky that most of the people and boards and companies that I've worked with. Have my back 100%. And, and, and I try to do that, impart that with my executive team, right? I want them to think and know um, that I back these guys 100%. And if you screw up, that's fine, right? If you and fail, fail fast. That's the Ray Dalio thing, right? You know, do it, try things, we'll pick it up and we'll move on. Right. But you've got my support to do it. And then people are way more creative to do stuff like that. But to, but to your question of, of how to look for opportunities, um, most really great opportunities come from people you know. Right, because they're yes. out supporting you. And they'll connect. They'll, they'll connect you, and and if you if you have a good reputation, when you can put stuff on LinkedIn and do whatever you want, and sure, it's a great promotional platform when you get out in front of people. But at the end of the day, when you're in that process of in discussions about somebody with a job, you want someone that is going to be the reference on the phone, mm -hmm. that is the champion, right? right. And is going to advocate for you and say, "You got high Brian. He's awesome." He's going to do. He's going to crush it in your organization. This is someone that you want to have on your team, right? That's what makes the difference, and that's what opens the doors. and And it's such a small world. Yeah, I mean, that's the the thing that surprises me the most. Well, I, I'm also hearing another uh, little word of wisdom, which is proximity. So, going back full circle to your business planning days when you had a goal or an objective, yeah. you said very clearly, whatever your north star is, you don't always get there. But you have that as the target, and it sounds like every little bit along the way, including the, you know, the, the yacht business and the uh, high-end uh, jet transport, you were in the proximity of where you wanted to go, and then you were dissuaded not to take that opportunity, but then offered another one. Mm. You were in the proximity of opportunity, so you, you know, you had the forethought to to move your bones in that direction. Yeah. 
not knowing exactly what was going to happen. And then, you know, uh, being opportunistic when it came your way yep. and then pivoting and going that way. So proximity is also sure. possibly a lesson here, which is just get yourself in the area, <laughs> in the vicinity so that, you know, your personality, your skills, whatever can be discovered and yeah. then, then you can pivot and, and go your way. I think also having a brand, right? I think I think you, you almost have to, it sounds a bit cheesy to say this, but I, mean, I think you have to find your niche, mm -hmm. right? I mean, my, my niche I think is, sounds a bit crass, but I sell expensive things to wealthy people and do transformations. That's what I do, right? And mm -hmm. and I've seen, and I think I'm a little unique, and I don't sound arrogant by saying this, but I mean, I've worked in Formula One private aviation, luxury yachting and travel and hospitality. And I've seen across those industries. Um, another thing actually, I think is kind of interesting, which goes back to one of your questions earlier about why did I move out of Formula One, was I never wanted to be stereotyped too much in an industry. Someone said to me early on in my career that as you evolve, you, you kind of want to move from being a specialist to a generalist mm -hmm. because it opens more opportunities for you. And if I'd stayed in Formula One, I would have got stuck at some point. If I'd stayed in the right. yachting industry, I would have got stuck at some point. Right. But I have transferable skills. So I think figuring out what is your skill set, what is your brand, what do you know, what is the thing that you can deliver, where's the value you can provide. And 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 figuring that out, I think, is, is a really important thing. And then I think the second thing is networking your way around that mm -hmm. and making sure that you... Connect. I mean, I, I like, I love meeting people. I mean, I'm, I'm out doing it all day long, and I, and and I mean, you have a curiosity. It's a, it's fascinating hearing people's stories, and um, and that sort of helps you build and develop your network, and 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 you know, you get known. And and when you're in an industry, like I still have a ton of contacts in private aviation, and I think I've got a pretty good reputation in the industry. Um, I, I now have a lot of contacts in travel and hospitality, and I know a lot of people. And I'm I'm building a reputation. We've been lucky with exclusive resorts. The business has done well, so that also helps, right? But so break it down. What is exclusive resorts for those who've never heard of it? Sure, it's a great question. Um, so we're a private membership club. Um, we've been around for twenty years. We have um, forty five hundred member families. We um, we own uh, and operate um, um, three hundred fifty homes, um, mainly North America, Caribbean, um, and also a few in in Europe. Um, we have a series of experiences and things. Um, and it's really a, a product or a platform for people. It's a travel solution for people who are looking to find a, a great way to to vacation and connect with a community. And, and these are private homes? They're private homes, yeah. So this is not like being a part of, say, a Marriott Bonvoy where they have 30 different brands and you can go stay at the Ritz-Carlton or you could stay at a, a Marriott. This is this is a private home. So this right. is, And this is also not Airbnb. This is an exclusive network, so you've got to join you. There's membership dues. Exactly right. So yep. Yep. What are the dues to join? So it starts at $200,000 initiation fee, and it goes up to 650000 is the initiation fee. And then you pay annual dues every year on top of that. So mm -hmm. it's, I mean, it's a rarefied space because, um, you know, there's no try before you buy. So you can't come and say, well, can I go and stay in Costa Rica or can I go and stay in wherever? Um, and if I like it, maybe I'll join. So what that means is that the majority of members that come to us, they know another member. So it makes it a very nice community. About 80% of our members that join us, they know somebody part of the community. Mm -hmm. um, and we've been around for a long time. And it's also a, a long-term commitment, right? Because you're signing up. It's like a country club. So you sign up for a 10-year membership or a 30-year membership. You pay the dues up front. You commit to an annual number of days that you travel every year. You can flex up and down with that. So you have the dues are uh, received up front. So the, the, well, the initiation fee is received up front. So yeah. it's like a joining fee. Um, and then we charge, and so you, you come to me, and so you, you join the club, 
and um, you pay your initiation fee and you'll pay your first year of dues. So if you're going to travel at 30 days, you'll pay for your 30 days or your 45 days, whichever tier of membership. I see. We put those days in your, your account and then you can travel across the system. Um, so the product-wise we have, we have the homes, um, which is which are all three to five bedroom large homes in, in destinations that you can... Yeah, maybe, in, in Napa somewhere. We're in, we're in Sloan, we're in Napa, we're in Aspen, we're in, in, we're in Deer Valley, we're in, in Vail. Resort towns, yeah. We're in resort towns. We also have a lot of homes in resorts. So we're in Rosewoods, we're in Four Seasons, we're in Auberges, we're in Everett's Carlton's and, and things like that. Um, and then we also have a, a, a another product, which is Experiences. And by the way, the, the homes are only available to members. So you can't access the home unless you're a member. And you can take your family and friends. And it's a little bit like a second home. So if you say, if you join, but you want to send friends, you can do that, right? It's like a second home. It doesn't have to be you. You can use it. You buy your days, use them as you want. And then we have experiences, which um, I think is a super exciting part of our business. So we do about 22 departures a year on seven different itineraries. And last year we did uh, trips out to Uruguay, Argentina, Botswana, India, Nepal. Um, ah, okay. We did a, we did a, we chartered 757 and we went around the world. Nine countries in 21 days with 75 members. So these are on tours or excursions or exactly, yeah. yeah I mean, and experiences. We, we did an I went on an Antarctica trip over over New Year, which was amazing. Wow. Um, and it's again, it's just members that go, and then we do events. So we take members to Formula One, Kentucky Derby, Wimbledon, Masters, things like that. And then we do also we do other events to bring the community members together. So we just did three events recently, which Thomas Keller hosted with us. Well, we do dinners for 40, 50 members and he mm-hmm. hosts that and, and just unique experiences. The differentiator for us is really around four things. One is the service element. So it's very high level of service. We give you a vacation ambassador when you first join us and that person manages all your trips. You have a full-time concierge, more like a butler really, on site that fills the home with your groceries and your wine and everything. Sounds it's amazing. It's amazing. It is amazing. Sign me up. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then the other thing I think is really important for us is just the trust. I mean, we've had members that have been with us for 15, 20 years, and, mm-hmm. and they've seen generations grow up with us. And and we have such a, a consistent product, and people trust the brand so much, we can put things in front of them. And then the third thing I think that, that I'm incredibly passionate about is uh, is our community. Um, we have 4,500 members, um, all obviously given the, the nature of the expenses, they're, they're fairly affluent, but they're people with fascinating stories. Mm-hmm. And um, and it's cool because what I, what I really like about it is, is – in the other industries I worked in, like working in private aviation, it's very transactional. Um, selling a yacht is very transactional. But in this business, I get to meet these people who have taken their families and they have these life-changing experiences and, and things. Um, and I get to sit down with them and have dinner with them and spend time with them and they've become my friends. And we've got the most amazing, I mean, people who run companies whose brands you know, people right. who are in the public eye. We have a another gentleman that's a, a become a really good friend of mine. He was a the commanding officer of the adversary program at the Top Gun Naval Academy. I mean, mm. the coolest people with the coolest stories. So I want to know, you know, if we're zooming out a little bit yeah. and we are applying these principles to the businesses that my audience runs, how do how do how are you finding your audience, or is the audience finding you? Are you relying a hundred percent on word of mouth that it's a soft pass or a white glove treatment like yeah. referral basis? Um, you know, you give the right handshake or, handshake or knock the door and <laughs> like, that's how it's a velvet rope kind of experience. Or um, tell me about how you know what these people want and need. So we have, it's a, it's a small community, right? I mean, we yeah. have, we have 4,500 families and yeah. we, we only bring in 200 new families a year. 
And so, and also we, we have to calibrate that because... Oh, so is it capped or is it... Um... So we, we, we cap it in the sense that we don't... We can only bring enough new families in based on the availability that we have. Right. So we have to measure it and calibrate it. So 300 so we properties... Don't, we don't cap it. Okay. We have, 300, we have 350 homes, but if we wanted to bring more members in, we'd have to increase the homes. And we're doing that anyway. Okay. So... That was going to be my next question. Yeah, we, we've gone through a, a sort of interesting journey over the last three years because um, we're now at a point where... We have a, we, we've we've optimized the the size of the portfolio and the product to the member base, and so we're sort of step stepping it up as we as we go forward. Right. So because there's demand. Well, there's demand, but also I'm in. We could if we were to bring in 300 members this year, I probably wouldn't have the product and availability for that. I have to get the product and availability to support that. Right. Um, Is there a, a waiting list? Do you have people? No, not really. I mean, we, we, it's, we, it's sort of by invitation in the sense that the, the way it works is we typically look for people that know people in the community. Right. Um, there assume there's like an application process where they... Yeah, sort of. I mean, it's, it's, it's not quite as formal as that. Mm-hmm. Um, what we do is, is um, most of the businesses, as I say, comes through, through, through some sort of referral or it's a member connection or it's someone who knows us. Right. We get to know them. And obviously, if they're going to stroke a check for $250,000, they're going to call their friends and say, is this the right thing right. for us? So we want people that are part of the community that we think will add value to that as well. Right. Um, and um, and the way these these things sort of come into play, we've we've been probably, I think, over the last few years, we've, we've not really invested very heavily in our brand. We've started doing that a lot more. Um, the other thing that we've pivoted more recently is to to bring in more younger families because um, we're a great solution for young families who want to travel. I mean, you can take a, a young family and, and go and stay in a Four Seasons or in a, you know, in a, in a, in a large hotel and you're paying 1500 bucks a night a room for sort of four or five rooms. Mm-hmm. And then you're still going into the restaurant and shared spaces, whereas with us, you go into a house. And right. you've got the family and you've got the kitchen area and the living area and you've got like a swimming pool and things like that. So you've got your own enclosed space. Right. But great solution for that. So we're trying to do more of that. But I mean, to your, to your question in terms of how we bring people in, it's a number of things really. It's um, We're getting out. We, we reinvented the brand a lot over the last three years. We have, we've done a lot more community engagement initiatives. And the cool part about it is converting people when they come. So we invite them to these events. So we do an event with 50 members. And we have five tables of 10 and we bring in a new family that's considering the club. And we sit on a table with members mm-hmm. and the magic happens. And these people, the members sell the club right? because they're so passionate about it. So that's how we make sure that when we identify and assimilate new members into the club, that they're a fit because it's kind of like a marriage, right? They see the people that, that they want to be part of this community. Yeah. And we encourage people that are similar in terms of like-mindedness yeah. to be part of our group. So it makes me think, are there prospective uh, members that are uninvited or maybe rejected they can't they can't join the community you have strict rules i'm i'm thinking about like you know um you know if you go, go try to get uh, an apartment in new york city and you know the the neighbors are sort of on the board and they get to evaluate who the next tenant is and if you don't uh, if you don't have the right personality or the right pedigree you might not get that place is it Kind of like no, that. we're not quite like that. I mean, I, th- I think, I mean, we like to say we're elite, but not elitist, right? Well, I think right. we're we're a brand that is, um, and if you look at most of our members, actually, we're not a, most of our members, they are very family-orientated people. I mean, they're not like super flashy people. Um, right. You know, the, a lot, we have a lot of families who, you know, they're wealthy, but you wouldn't necessarily know it. Um, and even the ones that are wealthy, it's, it's really fascinating when you sort of, a lot of them, most of them are entrepreneurs, right? And they've come, a lot of them come from humble beginnings and they've yeah. done really well. And 
I mean, a very, a very good friend of mine, he's actually a really good friend of mine who I've got to know through through the club and and him and his wife have become very good friends of mine. And he's uh, he's done incredibly well in the property industry. Um, but they're they're quite frugal, right? I mean, we have a town, we have a we have a store in our town that is our sort of like go to. But his wife won't shop there because she says it's too expensive, and she drives five miles to the Whole Foods because sure. it's so. There's there's always that element, right? And I and I think these sort of the origin stories, as, as you talk about, is is kind of interesting when you when you meet people. But we're not, we're certainly not. Um, I wouldn't want people to think that we're sort of an elite private club where you have to go through a sort of a process to be vetted and and and, yeah. and, and come in. It's more of a self selection process, right? Where we want you to see the people that are in the club, and if you feel you're you're part of that, you'll meet them and you'll kind of assimilate into that. Yeah, you know, the, the community model is, uh, I mean, it's booming today. It's, it's like sort of everything and nothing has changed. There's always been, you know, tribes of people, private communities, exclusive communities. Yeah. It's nothing new. It's it's a very good business model. And even if you have a limited, you know, uh, 4,500 family mm. a headcount, it's still, you know, a very um, potent formula. Yep. Uh, I think about like another community like, uh, Tiger Twenty One, for yep, example, right? Exactly it, right. It's got a a pretty hefty membership due, and 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 then they want to put like minded people together who are able to come together. So I want to push back a little bit and get a little bit clear on this, just so I understand. How do you know? So you're at the helm. Mm -hmm. How do you know what your members want? Like, are you asking them? Are you? Do you have your ear to the ground, listening somehow, and then? You know, how are you then implementing that um, intelligence and putting it into your business plan? That's a great question as well. Um, lots of different ways. I mean, I think you have to be, I think this is where the sort of, in any company that you run, I think you've got to be super curious. I think you've got to be open. I think you've got to speak to people. I think you've got to speak to, as I said earlier, people in the front line. You've got to speak to members all the time. So we have a number of different channels. We have, um, there's a strong relationship between the vacation ambassador that knows the members. So if you're vacation ambassador, um, uh, when, when they're working with you, we get to know a lot about you, right? I mean, right. you're you're traveling anywhere from thirty to hundred days with us, so we know what food you like, what wine you like, what you, what activities you like. We know how you like your your the the, the home set up. We like yeah. if you've got idiosyncrasies that you like. If you want us to take the ice out of the ice machine, we know yeah. all these things about you. And so we have a pretty good insight into into those sort of things. We, so that ambassador's in the front lines, and they're really. Very connected. Communication, very connected. Passing back information. By the way, this family likes this and not that. Yeah, and we institutionalize a lot of that too. So we, we, we know that. The other thing we do, which I'm really big on, is we do surveys. So we do 20,000 vacations a year in the system. And we, we actively encourage members to do surveys. The surveys come in the day before. They are consolidated into a, into a, a file, into a spreadsheet. And we disseminate those surveys out to about 150 people the next morning at 7 a.m. It's the first thing I read every single morning. I open my email and I read the member surveys. I want to know what people are saying, what they like, what they don't like. Right. And it's good. And then we have someone who is sort of a coordinator of that. And they read all the surveys and we send another email out to the same group. And we do all the shout outs. Mm -hmm. If someone had a great experience, we say this person had a great experience. And, and it's, it's cool because what that does is it's 7 o'clock in the morning the first thing that you read, you get really fired up because you read these great things about members traveling the system. Yeah, you get feedback. And yeah. you get feedback. On the flip side of that, if someone hasn't had a great experience, it's in there and you see it. And, you know, back to, to my learnings in my private aviation days, I'm a great believer in any service situation, if you have an experience that is less than perfect or suboptimal, if I respond to you really quickly and I'm all over it, 
you'll give me a bit of a pass, right? Right. And you'll you'll give me some time to go and fix it. If I if I make you wait, your frustration level just goes right up, right? Yeah. Or if you repeat the offense, then yeah, and it's harder for me to to, to come back. So we, I have I have a, a term I use in the organization hashtag on it, and I say this to people all the time. I'm like, I don't necessarily want you to, to give me a long email of what you're going to do or how you're going to do it. If you send me an email and say, I've got this, and just put a hashtag on it, and I know you're going to do it, you've got to do it. Yeah, solve it. Whatever. But solve it, fix it. And so and we have a, we have a very rapid escalation process if, if things go wrong. So, um, But your question was, was how do we get the, the sort of information on the members? So that's another source that we get. I spent a lot of time. I mean, I was on this trip. Um, I went to Antarctica over the, uh, over the New Year, which was, which is a bucket list trip, right? I mean, it was, we took this, it was a 10 day trip down in this, this brand new yacht down into Antarctica and it was fabulous. Um, and my wife didn't come with me, but I went on my own and she's like, well, you're going on this big trip and everything. And we had 130 members on the trip and over 10 days, I made it my mission to have a breakfast, a lunch or a dinner with every single member family on that boat, right? Because sure, yeah. I can have a conversation like this. Pressing the flesh, yeah. And I can hear, what do you like? What do you not like? And I'm, mm-hmm. and I'm, and I'm trial ballooning ideas, right? I'm like, what if we did this? What do you think about that? What if we did that? What is good? What's bad? Yeah. And so I'm getting all these ideas. And of course, I'm coming back and I'm firing off emails and people going crazy because I'm sending stuff. But yeah. And actually, uh, you know, out of 4,500, a population of a hundred plus is actually pretty good. It's really good. Size. Yeah, yeah, it's really good. So that's pretty clear to me. Uh, let's go back to the ambassador for a second because that position seems critical. It's critical, absolutely yeah. critical. How do you pick those people? Like, uh, what what characteristics do those people have? You know, it's it's really interesting. I think that the I, I'm, I'm I can talk about culture for hours. I'm a big believer in organization culture, and I think in any organization, I think you have to set the culture first. I mean, everyone talks about the fact that culture always trumps strategy, which is, a, which for me, I'm, I'm a firm believer in that. That's Peter Drucker right there. That's right, exactly. And if you get your culture right in an organization, and I believe in open communication, transparency, people being empowered, pushing responsibility down in organizations. I want to hire people that will get things done. I want to encourage people to, to take risks and make mistakes and try new things. And I also want to create a, an environment or a culture in our organization where people get the chance to, to grow and, and, and do new things and try new things because sure. they develop, right? So I think if you, can, if you can develop that in an organization, that's what helps people sort of expand. And so to your question, how do we hire ambassadors? Good people attract good people. Right. And if you hire a team, like I think an organization is like the body. If you have like an infection or a foreign organ in there, it's sort of you, you, the body will find some way to expel that out of the system. Right. Yeah. And I think organizations are like that. I think if you create a strong culture, what happens is people come in and in the hiring process, they see the people and they want to be part of that. I have a, a, a mission in our organization. I want us to be an employer of choice. I want to line around the block of people that want to come and join our organization. I want them yeah. to be excited about working here. Yeah. And, and, we're super lucky that we've got some phenomenal people. And part of that also is it's kind of an interesting organization too because we are a very tenured company. So I've been there for three years and I'm like, I was introduced the other day, we were at this event actually, and the, the head of who runs our experiences, she got up at this event and she said, I want to introduce our new CEO. And I'm like, I've been here for three years. <laughs> but she's been here for 18. Right. Right. And so our average tenure of VPs and above is 11 and a half years. Average tenure across the company is five and a half. Yeah. And what's happened with that cultural shift, a lot of these people have been there for a longer time. We've given them new opportunities and they've really raised up to that. So the, the, the ambassador role is critical. I imagine almost, you know, I, I've heard that there's like a butler school, you know, a school for butlers. There is. Yeah. Right. And it was, a, do you have a training program for them and you put them through a rigorous program? And I just imagine that that role is, it's like, you know, that's 
That's really the front line of everything. Absolutely right. I yeah. mean, the, so we have, we call them concierges. It's like a butler effectively yeah. because they do all your planning. They provision the home for you. They'll do everything you need. Yeah. Um, go grab you food if you need. I mean, exactly you know, right. fix your luggage gets lost. They're going to track it down and everything. Yeah. So whatever all, you need. And, and, and it takes the sort of the risk out of your vacation, right? I mean, you, yeah. the, the two elements of risk in vacation, like if you go and go to a, I mean, you can go and go to a villa rental company or something like that, right? And you can spend, you know, a ton of money on renting this fabulous home. And until you actually get there and put the key in the door and you open the door, you're never quite sure what's on the other side, right? And yeah, if you, do you have enough towels or, you know. Or even is the, is the place, did the pictures look better than what you actually get? Sure. Um, and then when you do that, your kind of deal then is with the host of the of the villa and you're sort of on your own a little bit. Um, and look, I mean, heavy meetings do, do, do a great job, but we take the risk out of that, right? If something, firstly, we own and operate all of the of the locations, uh, own or operate all the locations. Um, and if something goes wrong, we're going to fix it. Right. And we're going to bring you back and we're going to make it right and we'll be all over it. And we'll, we'll, so traveling gives you that sort of level of, of, of peace of mind in the system. But with the concierges, <clears throat> we train them. You're always with somebody. So when you're on site, there is always an exclusive resorts dedicated individual that is working with you. Right. Um, so wherever you are, um, it's not like you're going outside of our system. So we're always going to figure that out. And we train those people within our, our, our our way of doing things, and it works really well. Yeah. So let's go back to the model. I want to make sure I understand piece by piece. So uh, prospective members, Yep. They, there's an upfront <clears throat> membership cost. What does that cost again? It's uh, anything from sort of, it's about $200,000 up to about over $600,000 is the initiation fee. Okay. And that's the one-time initiation fee? That's right, yeah. And it depends on what level of experience you have, whether it's that's right. just... Vacation homes, or if you want to have the no, it, it so it, it's not so much the type of experience. It's more so the the two hundred thousand dollar membership where that starts is a ten year membership. I see, and then you can go up to a thirty year membership, which is more expensive. But then there's all sorts of other add ons, which gives you special booking privileges and um, and access earlier access, advanced reservations, and things like that that you get. And, and if you start at the base, can you then can you oh, trade yeah. up? Absolutely, hundred percent. Right, so you want to yeah, yeah. maybe mitigate your risk or figure yep. out what it's like. Yep. So yep. try it on for size. Yep. And then you can add on a la carte style. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So it's two hundred thousand to half a million ish, six hundred thousand. And then uh additionally to stay at the properties, the cost is So it's a fixed rate per night. So and this is this is the the, the sort of the fourth value element that I actually didn't mention earlier. Um so you pay the equivalent is is fifteen ninety five a night? We don't really do it that because it's a it's a it's a club model. So you buy a fixed number of days. But if you're buying thirty days, you're paying about forty five thousand dollars for the year. And if you break that down, then you have to amortize your initiation fees over that. But um, if you look at that compared to what you would normally pay, like if you're going to stay in a a really good five star resort today, um, I was talking to a member recently who's staying up in Whistler actually, um, and the Four Seasons in Whistler over. Um, President's Day weekend, you're probably paying about $1,600 a night for a one-bedroom unit. Sure. Whereas you pay that pretty much for one of our homes, and you get the whole home. So the value proposition is off the charts. And we can do that because we own the homes or a significant part of the portfolio, and we can do blended rates across across the platform. So right. um, so that's where there's a huge amount of value there when you, when you look and you're traveling in the system. Got it. And then uh, additional fees are just per experience or per... per- Sort of, yeah. So we do. Um, so for most of the homes that you'll stay in, we do. Um, it's a it's one planned day for one night. 
And then for some of the experiences, there are additional fees. So for example, like if you do the private jet trip is a good example of that. I mean, we can't do that in those rates. So there is an extra expense that we put on top of that. So a lot of the experiences will carry what we call a per diem with them. Okay. Um, the private jet trip is kind of extreme. We do, I mean, that's about $150,000 ahead in addition to using your plan days for that. Uh, but I mean, I mean, that thing sold out in like two hours. It was, it was, it was crazy. But, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, so there's, there's elements there where we, you, for some experiences, you'll pay extra, but for the majority of stuff in the portfolio and in the residence collection, it is one plan day for one night. So the value is incredible. So what do you think out of that population, uh, what percentage do you think are in it just for the networking or the relationships? Is that 50% or 80% No, or 20%? I mean, people join for the travel, right? I mean, I, I like to say people join for the travel, but they stay for the community because I think people don't think about the community when they first join. Yeah. So when, they, when they're thinking about, about whether they become a member, they become a member because um, it's the security, it's the peace of mind, it's the consistency, um, it's the service element that we provide, it's the value that we, that we offer in terms of comparisons. Yeah. That's why they join. Okay, so it is different than a Tiger 21. Oh, yeah. Because I think... Uh, and I can't speak for them, but I would guess that near 100% of the people join is the networking and the, for the networking, the access to people and information. So we, so for us, it's sort of the 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 access to the people. I think for many people, when they first join, they don't join because of that, and that, and, yeah. and in many respects, it's probably not even in their their sort of their consideration set when they join. But when they join, and, and we have sort of phases of membership, which I I, I kind of like to talk about. We have a lot of people join us when they have young families. We're a great way to travel. We're good value. You stay in the homes. You're not in the hotel. It's fantastic. And we're great for kids. And then when the kids get a bit older and they're starting to get to a point where they've got friends and girlfriends and boyfriends and interests and things like that, and you want to then bring them back to the family, so you sort of bribe them to go on vacation with you because you're saying, let's go back to Costa Rica or let's go back to Switzerland to Cabo the Alps or, or wherever. Yeah. yeah. And then there's a point where all of a sudden, and life travels fast, kids are up, they're grown, they're gone. And you're sitting there with your significant other thinking, we never went to Japan, or we never did New Zealand, or we never did that that bucket list trip. Mm-hmm. And so we have all these trips that we do where you can go and do the safaris, or you go to Japan, or you go to China, or you want to do. Um, and then that opens this whole new world. And those are the trips that people go on as a couple, typically, or sometimes you have solo travelers now as well that will go on these trips. We had when I was on the Antarctica trip, we had 130 members, and eight of the people on that trip were solo travelers. Mm. And the nice thing is, you go on these trips and you're on a boat with friends and in a community and in a club and you can sit down next to anyone and people welcome you as part of that. Yeah, there's safety and security. And That's exactly security. right. Yeah. And then when you, um, um, and you build these connection relationships and quite often you might end up traveling with people and these people become your friends. And mm-hmm. and then you go on another trip with them. Like we have one family I was talking to earlier, they're doing five continents with us this year. Um, and they will see other members on this trip, yeah. on other trips and they stay in touch. They become friends, and it's and that's the community element of it. And what for me, the next generation of that, which I'm really intrigued about, is how do we evolve that? And the things that things like people like Tiger Twenty One and YPO are really good at are, are those sort of things. And what's interesting is, I mean, I get calls all the time from people. I would say about twenty five percent of our members fly privately, right? Um, and people call me all the time about private aviation. What who should I use? What should I do? What questions should I ask? Can you give right. me referrals? And even yachting, chartering yachts, people call me. And I would like us to be a, a sort of a platform where we become a go-to for people where we can offer those broader services. And I think for us, the next evolution of the brand is doing a couple of things. One is untapping that community and getting people talking. 
I mean, I just get such a kick out of the people that I meet. They've got fascinating backgrounds and stories. That's one element. The other element is, and this is the, the interesting thing, our members are spending, and this blows my mind every time I think of this, our members are spending about a, between $100 and $200 million a year on leisure travel outside of us as well. <laughs> so how do I get access to that, right? Right. And and we have the trust where if I go back and I give them a product that says we can help you with your flights or your hotels, whatever else, that's another area for us I think we can provide services. And members want to use us for that, but we should have a product for it. Right. And then there's, there's other, also, I mean, I can talk about this for hours, but I mean, the other areas for us as a company is we don't have, if, unless you're going to give us a check for $200,000, I don't have a product for you. And there's plenty of people traveling, spending $50,000 a year on travel. And so how can we sort of move down into, when I say down, it seems crazy to say $50,000 a year is moving down. But, you know, how can we move into a market that is more accessible for a broader market sector? Mm -hmm. And that's that's the next frontier. And we've we spent the last um, three years kind of reinventing the, the company internally. The product hasn't changed very much, but we've changed a lot of processes and systems and accountability. And um, we're much more efficient than we've ever been. Companies performing better than it's ever performed the last three years for us. COVID, to some extent, has been an interesting opportunity because it, it's brought people to homes and our product. We've leveraged the opportunity. So um, outside of word of mouth, are you? how are you getting the word out? How are you advertising? Well, we do so a lot of different ways. I mean, we have um, we we rebuilt our public website, um, which is which has been um, a fantastic thing. Um, we just hit hundred thousand uh, followers on on Instagram this weekend, which I was super proud about because we had like one thousand three years ago, and the team has done an amazing, amazing job. We do a lot of events. Um, okay. We do. I mean, obviously, we do the other channels. We do digital advertising. We do. We were in the New York Times recently. We've got a great PR um, program that we've done. I think it was. You know, over the last couple of years, we've been in New York Times, Washington Post, uh, Wall Street Journal. Um, and so we're always using sort of those channels. We drive a lot of content. We have an internal magazine that we do. So there's lots of channels that we do to sort of promote and market the brand out there. Um, I would guess the most powerful source is the member. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, there's your the work for you. And even, even, but it's always, there's, there's always this, it's, it's really multi-touch as well, right? So, so yeah. what happens is, Someone will hear about us, they'll read about us, they'll see an ad in the New York Times, they'll read about something in the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or Washington Post. And then they'll they'll look something up and they might see and see us on Instagram and they may they make it to the website, they'll read some content. Yeah, you have several touch points to be able to reach people. Um so so this series is called Behind the Brand. Yes. Um and you've done a lot of brand work. Uh first of all, how would you define brand and what branding is? And then my second question is going to be, what is the exclusive resorts brand? So that's a really good question. I mean, to me, I think brand is very much about what you stand for. It's about your, your values. It's your belief system. Um, it is it is the essence of really how you differentiate in the marketplace. I think that to me is is, is really what a brand is all about. Um, I think there's, there's, there's multiple different elements of that. But I think any brand has really got to represent the core DNA of your business and it's got to be something that when people look at that and they hear the backstory behind it it stands behind that i mean we have a um one of the things that the 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 terms that we use a lot internally is life is too short for should haves and that is what our brand is and we we believe that um you know time travels quickly and and you know one minute you can be with your daughter walking down the beach holding hands and the next minute she's off to college and then the next minute she's getting married and the next <laughs> minute and these precious moments, I think we miss out on these things. And I think we have a, a sort of a philosophy in our organization that um, 
I think we, we went through an era for many years where it was everyone was all about work and it was all about being productive and things. But some of the best things that you can do for yourself is giving yourself that time out where you can go and you can take a vacation, you decompress. And yeah. the best ideas always come from when you're sitting on a beach or you're walking or you're away from, from that. So we try and give people that opportunity to do that and to build that into their lives. Yeah, experiences, um, not things. It's experience, exactly right. It's experiences. And I think that's really important because I think if you think about how things have evolved over the years. I mean, we went through 90s, 80s, 90s, back in, in sort of those days, even early 2000s. It was all about materialism and opulence, and it's about acquisition and what can I get in my life? How much can I accumulate in my life? And then we sort of went through a phase where we went through the sort of the social media generation. It was like, here I am on top of a mountain. How can I socially signal all these places that I've been to to sort of raise my profile and what have you? And it's really interesting to me that I think that's evolving. And I think people now are looking for really, um, you know, good core experiences where they can go and they can just experience something and not be part of that. And, where it can and build be, relationships. But and also, yeah. and also transformation, right? I mean, everyone's looking to evolve, right? If you can find a way that you can go to an experience. When, whenever you travel, what are you looking for? You're looking for, you can be doing the fly and flop vacation where you just want to go and take a break, right? Or you go somewhere where you want to expose yourself to something. You want to have a new experience. Local culture, local food. Yeah, and something yeah. that will will be immersive for you. But at the end of the day, will transform you a little bit. Yeah, you're and learning. You're opening your mind, your heart, your you know your your awareness, and and I think your eyes, you're opening and, and being more uh, open to different cultures, things. That to me is what travel is all about. And I think if I think one of the things that, that we're really passionate about is is how can we encourage people to really take that seriously. And it's kind of funny in our organization because you know, the irony for me is is of running a vacation company. I say this to, to my colleagues all the time: is that I'm not a great planner. Right. I mean, we, we have people in the organization that one of my colleagues who runs our marketing team, she's a great planner, she's super well organized. I can't think beyond the end of a couple of weeks, but I have my vacation ambassador and she calls me up and she says, you have nothing on the books. You should go somewhere. You take, take some time out. Mm -hmm. And it forces me to do that. And I go away and I decompress and I come back a much better person because of it. So uh, if I'm going to extract another lesson, it's that what brought us here mm is not necessarily what's going to get us 100% right. to the next place. 100% right. And travel experiences, getting yep. out of your yep. comfort zone, yep. getting out of your your routine. Oftentimes that's what does it. Exactly right. Yeah. Maybe let's uh, put a cap on this, James, by offering some of your best advice to entre you know, budding entrepreneurs or uh, experienced entrepreneurs about your space. Um, and maybe expanding this idea of, you know, what got you here, mm. doing the same, mm. sta same status quo is not necessarily what's going to get you yeah. to the next level. Yeah. Maybe put a cap on it. I, I think a couple of things. I think, I think one is, um, I think you've got to remain curious. I think being curious, I think asking lots of questions, I think people listening to people are on the front line, listening to, listening to your clients, our members, what are their ideas and, and finding ways to do that. I think the other thing is in any organization, um, it's all about your people, right? It's all about your culture. And if you get, you have to have people motivated. And in my legacy, in, in my, I don't have kids, and I, and I think my legacy in my life is, is if I can have an impact on people in our organization that will take them to a place in their careers that they didn't think they were capable of going to, and I can help them on their journey, they will, will, it, it, you see people open up in different ways that you wouldn't expect. And they do things that they didn't think they were capable of. And that's what drives an organization. It makes it fun. Um, it makes it it makes it interesting. People get passionate about it, 
And that's how you grow. And I think if you can unlock that from a culture, it's super important. So for me, I mean, I think the the um, my, I suppose, my advice to anyone running businesses is are those things, be curious, be in the details, speak to lots of people, give talent opportunities and promote talent because that's the thing. And, and also great leadership is getting out of people's way. Find good people and just let them do their thing and let them, and if they fail, that's fine, work, work it out. But, um, but of course, having the vision and an idea of, of where you want to go. One of my, there's a guy called Tony Schwartz that, um, wrote the book, Powerful Engagement and Things, and he's a, he's a friend of ours. And he talks about the fact that as a, as a CEO, you're the chief energy officer. You're the guy, the person that goes in, the guy or the girl that goes in and you're, you're that galvanizing force and that energy component in a business. And if you can impart that to an organization and you can inspire people to do their best work, that's what drives change and that's what makes a difference. Mm-hmm.